regular podcast series. We have the usual crowd, Raphael, who's been battling this evening to get the sound to work, so thank you very much for that. We also have Angela, David, and Arturo, and if you've been following our regular social media sites, so Facebook, G+, and Twitter, you would know Pint of Science US has been posting about this evening's guest, who is marine biologist Mike Barnett. Hey Mike, how are you doing? Good, how are you doing? Glad to be here. So what we usually do is start off by asking you how you ended up doing what you're doing. I'm a marine biologist working for the National Marine Fisheries Service, which is a branch of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Since I was a little, I always knew I wanted to be a marine biologist. You know, since I was a young kid watching Jacques Cousteau and all the nature series on PBS and Attenborough, I've always known. So it's uh, there's been no question as far as the direction I want to take in my life. My current uh, portfolio is with the Protected Resources Division, and I primarily work with endangered species. Part of your work actually involves uh, the protection of sea turtles. Can you tell us about that aspect? Sure. What, one of my uh, primary responsibilities is working in fisheries bycatch reduction uh, of sea turtles. And one of our main objectives is reducing sea turtle bycatch in shrimp trawls. And what we've done over the years is modify the gear. You know, the primary gear we're talking about here is trawl gear, which is used to harvest shrimp. We've realized that uh, we can basically modify the gear with a turtle excluder device. And what that is is a grid you put in the mouth of the net, say a ramp, where the shrimp go through the bar spacing back of the net and the turtle hits that grid and is either directed up or down to a little trap door in the net so it can be released. So that's reduced the, the bycatch mortality of sea turtles and helped to contribute to the recovery of these species. One of the neat aspects of my job is I do a lot of foreign work. Because sea turtles are a global species, uh, our fishermen here in the U.S. shouldn't have to bear the burden of the conservation objectives. So as part of fair trade, people that want to import shrimp to the U.S. had to play by the same rules. So we as TED experts, turtle excluder device experts, we go to these foreign countries that want to import shrimp to the U.S. We do a technology transfer. We basically educate them on TEDs. We've done that in the past 20 years. And then every year, as Congress mandates us to go down there to inspect their fleets to make sure they're playing by the same rules. They have an effective program. So either they get embargoed or they're certified to import shrimp to the U.S. So I go all through Latin America, South America, Africa, Australia. So it's a really neat niche that uh, only a couple people in our office get to do, and I've been fortunate enough to, to land in that, uh, that job, and it's been quite interesting. As far as marine biology goes in general, we were talking about how there are kind of parallels with space exploration. Yeah, that's, that's a very good point. There is a lot of analogies between outer space and inner space, uh, and there's a lot we just don't know past, say, 150 feet. Recreational divers can cover a lot of the shallower waters we know quite a bit about, nearshore estuarine waters, things of that nature, but when it comes to the deep ocean, it's basically largely unexplored. There's a lot of technology, thankfully, just as it's helping with outer space research, it's helping with inner space and deep sea exploration with ROVs, which were remotely operated vehicles. We also have AUVs, and the difference between the ROVs and AUVs is ROVs are typically tethered, whereas the AUV is the A stands for autonomous. They basically can be pre-programmed to go out and run surveys on their own, and then when they've completed that survey, they'll come to the surface to be recovered. So the vessel doesn't have to be on site the whole time. So it's 
a lot more cost effective. Uh, so there's a lot of new developments that, that are helping. And, and this is all science. It's not just biological. It's geological. It's, it's uh, I guess, one of the surprises as I've got into marine sciences and is how little we really know about the ocean and, you know, how we exploit the ocean. You think that we would We'd want to know more about it to do it responsibly, and usually it's an afterthought. Hopefully we can change that paradigm there a little bit in the design so we are more well-informed of what we're doing in the marine environment. Yeah, I think I've always thought it very strange that anybody would kind of rely on a species for their, their kind of their living, and then, for example, with the fish, they just fish things to extinction. But one of the other things I wanted to say was with regards to the deep sea exploration, do you think there are any kind of crazy beasties down there? I mean, I'm sure there are absolutely maybe hundreds of thousands of species that we know absolutely nothing about, but do you think there's anything kind of like big down there? I don't know about big. Well, actually, we do know there are some, some big critters out there that uh, we're finding. We're finding more and more about these deep water squid species uh, and other mollusks out there. But there's there are some definitely some beasts out there, and it's... I'm not necessarily meaning large, but you have to understand these organisms have adapted to grow in a very hostile environment. There's no light, the pressure is extreme, you know, a lot of these have bioluminescence. I mean, they, they almost look like science fiction. And you've seen The Abyss or Avatar, James Cameron, a lot of those, those critters that he's developed are actually based on real marine organisms. So this is not technically related to marine biology, but this is possibly one of the most fascinating kind of parts of having you on here as a guest is your hobby looking for shipwrecks. I mean, who does that? Yeah, we're, we're a crazy bunch. I mean, we go out looking for piles of rusted metal, which if you saw on the side of the road, you wouldn't think twice about it. But for me, it really gets me stoked because we're talking about time capsules. I mean, some of these wrecks have been down for hundreds of years, and you could be the first person to lay eyes on this vessel since it basically dropped from the surface of the ocean. And you know, everything is laying there. You can see personal effects. I mean, it, it tells a story, uh, tragedy, I mean, just the drama and the loss. In large part, these wrecks, we know it was lost on such and such date, but that's it. Or sometimes we know it disappeared en route from, say, New York to New Orleans, but we don't really know what happened. And sometimes by looking at the wreck and investigating the wreck, you can put those pieces together to tell the, the story of the final moments of this vessel and the people that were aboard. To me, that's what I find most gratifying is trying to identify all these lost shipwrecks. The marine biology aspect of it is, you know, these are little ecosystems. A lot of times you're on the bottom of the ocean, it's just like a barren wasteland, and then you have this little oasis, the habitat that organisms can utilize for, for food and for shelter. So for me, it's, it's several different dimensions that uh, are very appealing to me. How many kind of wrecks do you think there are off the coast of, well, let's start with Florida. Wow, to put a number on, I mean, we don't really know for certain. Because a lot of times, especially, say, pre-mid-18th century, when we didn't have a lot of colonies, we didn't have a lot of settlements along the coast of Florida, the ship wrecked. If there were no survivors, there's no story to tell. They just we just knew the vessel didn't make it back to Spain or England or wherever it was going. So we're talking about thousands. I mean, if you want to put a number on it. And a lot of times, like when these vessels were coming across the Atlantic, again, we knew it departed, let's say, Liverpool on such and such date. And it was intended to go in Boston or New York, and it never showed up. We don't know where it is. It could be 10 miles off the coast of the United States. It could be in the middle of the Atlantic, for all we know. There's no debris and no survivors. It's just a mystery. What do you think is, to you personally, the most interesting or exciting thing that you've ever found about one of these wrecks? That's a tough one because I, I always find something that just blows me away or knocks me over on each new wreck. We actually found an aircraft several years ago that is a Coast Guard rescue aircraft. 
1950s, there was a, a Mayday a vessel sinking off the of Panhandle of Florida, and it was an uh, amphibious aircraft. as a U.S. Coast Guard came out of Bayboro here, here in St. Pete was dispatched to go rescue these guys and they dropped the watering pump down to them and in the process they ended up crashing and they found one guy but the rest of the crew the plane was never found and we stumbled upon it just a few years ago in the process of trying to document the site and everything I got to know the families of the crewmen I just found that just it was very moving because here we have rescuers that turn into needing rescue and the families that just never knew what happened to their loved ones. It just shows that the Coast Guard puts it all on the line and sometimes pay everything for it, you know, for our well-being. When I'm 100 miles offshore, it's nice to know that someone's there to save your ass, you know, to be blunt about it. So, so yeah. Mike and the rest of the group here have actually been having a little bit of chat before the podcast started. And you were talking about the aspect of your work that requires a fair bit of fundraising. And this is something that people don't necessarily think about when they think about science. They just say, okay, well, we go into the lab, we do the work, but of course the, the money has to come from somewhere. And where does that come from in your, your field? Well, for my personal pursuits, you know, aside from my personal job responsibilities, I work with a lot of my colleagues that have their research interests. We do a lot of volunteer work, whether it's specimen collection or documentation. Uh, but then there's also a lot of like, the shipwreck research or other marine biology pursuits that aren't really in my job title or job responsibility. We try to find grant work or we do crowdsourcing, things of that nature, because a lot of times we're talking about field research, which is not usually cheap, because in the Gulf of Mexico, sometimes we're going 100 miles offshore. Obviously, with fuel prices these days, it's uh, getting more and more expensive. Uh, we're trying to find other avenues to, to share that burden so it's not coming out of our pockets. For example, one of our pursuits, we're doing some diving off the West Florida Shelf, about 100 miles off of Tampa Bay. We're talking about an area rarely explored by recreational divers because of the depth, 200 to 240 feet of water. Did a few dives there just to get wet, and we came across this area of a uh, unique species of coral called Oculina varicosa, which is the common name is ivory tree coral and it's stark white, which is unusual because most coral species, when they turn white, usually they're dead, but this is, it's white when it's alive. So it's opposite of what you would typically find. It's also a deep water species, which most corals are shallow water, you know, where the light is, uh, down to maybe 100 feet or so. No one really knew anything about this. We knew the species was randomly found throughout the Gulf of Mexico, but this is an area that was abundant growth. The only other place we knew it occurred was on the east coast of Florida, on the central east coast of Florida, uh, off Fort Pierce to Cape Canaveral called Oculina Bank. We had several objectives. One, we wanted to map this habitat to see how extensive it was because for the odds, we go in the only place it was found. I mean, it could be going for miles or tens or hundreds of miles up and down this break. And we also wanted to sample the coral to see the relationship to other colonies of this Oculina coral on the East Coast. Well, so we, we looked internally uh, through my agency, my employer, and that came up empty. So we looked at other avenues, and we ended up working with some commercial fishermen, actually. They, they basically donated their vessel time to take us out there to this area. And we recovered some specimens of coral. I worked with some colleagues at uh, LSU in, in Louisiana to do the genetic work. And as it turns out, the species is genetically identical to the population on the east coast of Florida. So that was several new finds was, one, this habitat area existed at all, and then two, it's genetically identical to the, the stuff on the East Coast. So that was kind of a, 
a gratifying accomplishment. So is there a big difference in the, the habitat of that coral on the, the different shores? And um, is it then surprising that you actually see this on both sides of the, the Florida coasts? Yeah, that, that's a very good question. It's on the east coast where Oculina thrives in these big thickets uh, of coral, look like big bushes of tumbleweed. That area, it's, it's very dynamic. You have a, usually subjected to high current, two to three knots of current. Temperature variations, is it can be anywhere from 80 degrees Fahrenheit down to 48 degrees Fahrenheit at any given time. Uh, so it's radically dynamic, whereas in the Gulf, it's a little more stable. So the growth pattern is different, whereas on the East Coast, you have these massive thickets that form to basically try to break down the current. It grows from the inside outwards. In the Gulf, it's more just encrusting where you have maybe a half a meter high, but then it grows everywhere. So it's different strategies, I guess, the way they try to to adapt to, to, to live in those areas. So do you also notice different species living within the coral or is it too early for you to have looked at this aspect? We've actually seen some parallels between the two areas and the, the species that coexist in the coral. I mean, it's, it serves as habitat for other species and you have all these little branching colonies of coral and uh, anthids and other little fish, they get out there to avoid predators. And you also have a lot of invertebrates, uh, little brittle stars. So there's, there's a lot of similarities there, but it's just, it's more of the, the environment the coral exists in versus the utilization of the coral itself. Excellent stuff. So now we will move on to some questions that we have from people listening. Now with regard to the, the conservation of the turtles, what I have here is, I didn't know this was the case, why should we care? Why should we care? I mean, there's intrinsic value to these species, you know, being out there, whether it's, you know, just being able to view them and knowing they exist, and there's also, yeah, they, they do form uh, useful services. I mean, they are part of the, the food chain, and actually, they used to be part of the diet for a lot of uh, Floridians. Back in the day, that was a, a very big fishery in the Florida Keys. And actually, there are people today that really would like to see them recover so they can fish them again. I hope that doesn't happen. I think they have more value out there, and I don't know if they can sustain the, what we did to them back in the 1800s. I mean, I guess the, the most direct answer to that is, you know, every species that we lose is one closer to us. Do we really want a world when it's just human beings and asphalt? I, I hope not. That'd be, that'd be boring. So are they close to extinction? I mean, I don't know where they are on the, the scale of being endangered. All the all the sea turtle species that we have in, in U.S. waters are either considered threatened or endangered. As far as their proximity to being extinct, I think we're, we're definitely a long way away from where we were in the 1970s. I mean, for example, I mean, the Kemp's Ridley sea turtle, which is at one point we're down to maybe five, six hundred nests globally of these species because they utilize the Gulf of Mexico. They nest in basically certain areas of Mexico and along the Texas coast and they were on the brink of extinction. It would have been very easily another you know five, seven years and they would have been blinked out I mean to the point where they just wouldn't be able to reproduce and, and sustain the population. They would have collapsed you know whether genetic bottlenecks or whatever. Uh, but thankfully we had a lot of actions that tried to reverse that course and that trend and whether it was you know, protecting the, the nesting habitat and protecting it from harvest from poachers, from local coyotes or raccoons or things of that nature. We basically sheltered the, the nests, caged them out, reared them out until they could get back in the water. We also had a lot of fishery management changes, primarily TEDs, turtle excluder devices, to try to reduce the impact of our fisheries. We've done that for other fisheries as well, like the longline fisheries. We have lighting ordinances here in Florida trying to allow these turtles to, to nest uh, without causing all sorts of problems, the lighting issues where they wander into the streets and get run over by cars. Thankfully, we're definitely in a much better place than we were two, three decades ago. And uh, we're seeing all the species 
Leatherbacks are kind of uh, lingering a little bit, but we're seeing loggerheads are on the uh, rebound. Chems really have gone, they've gone ballistic, which is just a huge success story. And we're basically looking at the next five to seven years, potentially downlisting them from endangered to threatened. So yeah, in our lifetime, we're looking at these several these species potentially being downlisted or removed entirely from the endangered species list, which is, it's major considering where they were, you know, only 20, 30 years ago. So we have a question here from Austin. It would seem that some consider the, the deep sea the last frontier still to be fully exposed. How much of the ocean do we really know about in terms of biology and ecology? So would you say 50%, 75%, 25%? I think you're, you're off by several orders of magnitude there. Uh, we, we've barely scratched the surface. In the, in the sciences, a lot of times you know, it's dated science and we're, we're constantly trying to get better information, especially when it comes to deep water environments. So maybe 10% really. I mean, there's just so much out there in the open ocean that there could be species that are just, you know, pelagic species, but deep water pelagic species that you just never would encounter unless you're in the middle of the Atlantic somewhere, say 2,000, 3,000 feet. There's so much we don't know. We don't know what we don't know. I think is probably a fair way to assess that. Inquiring minds would like to know what you think the biggest difficulty in becoming a marine biologist is. Probably the biggest difficulty in becoming a marine biologist is, is finding a job. <laughs> to be blunt, I mean, to give you an example, I mean, there's at university, I mean, we, marine science was a pretty large discipline in the college I went to at the University of South Carolina. And of the graduating class, I knew probably 40, 50 people that were close friends, and maybe 10% of them are still in that field. It's something you have to do your do your time, really, to do. You know, you start off being a technician, getting, at the time, five, six dollars an hour, working way up. Yeah, it's it's not a glamorous field. It's I've had a very uh, interesting path, you know, going from college to field technician to doing inland and marine resources. So I've got freshwater as well as marine resources, trying to diversify a little bit. And then doing fishery management, again, $25,000, $27,000 a year, which isn't, wasn't a lot of money back then and definitely not a lot of money now. This is you know, 20 years ago. Then sometimes luck plays a part in it. Uh, I ended up getting a job working for Ted Danson of, uh, yeah, Cheers fame. Yeah, he had an uh, environmental organization called American Oceans Campaign, uh, basically you know, lobbyists uh, up on Capitol Hill. So it was a totally different going from science, in the field of science, to management now to policy. It was interesting to see that aspect of the business, I guess, I won't call it business, but just seeing that aspect of how science is utilized and sometimes misutilized uh, to make a point and make policy and, and regulations. But it was still, again, it was a, a novel experience. And then coming down to work for the National Marine Fisheries Service, now doing more, more science-oriented uh, than policy. It's been a long, strange trip. You just have to, you really have to want it and keep, keep with it. If you're a kid and want to be a marine biologist, you want to be Jacques Cousteau, you got to stick it through. And so that's, that's where I am now. Thankfully, still doing the job that I love. This person would also like to know if you have any advice for aspiring book authors. That's from Arturo. That's a good question. Yeah, I've, I've published uh, three books on Florida maritime history and, and shipwrecks, uh, and also write for several magazines. And I guess my biggest piece of advice is uh, Definitely, if you have an inspiration to write, just do it. Unfortunately, the book industry is, is anyone knows print media is on its last gasps, which actually opens up new paths. I mean, for, for you know, e-books, now you know, it's, it's more and more easily accessible to self-publish and uh, 
to put stuff out there to your friends that's using social media. But as far as you know, the becoming a, a New York Times bestseller, that, I think that's an antiquated you know notion. Uh, it's it's a different different world now. Well, there you go for the budding authors. Thank you so much, Mike, for coming out and speaking to us this evening. The lovely music was produced by my friend Hadley Ford, and it's a track called Wishful Thinking, inspired by the quotes of Carl Sagan. Thank you so much to the Three Birds Tavern for hosting us this evening. It's the best scotch egg I've had in a long time. It's just a one, it's not the truth, here I am, wishful thinking. Family friendly? <laughs> I, I was doing work, this is probably 14, 15 years ago. We were doing some dives out in the Gulf of Mexico. And we were doing deep dives. You know, we're doing 240, 250 foot. This is, you know, that's kind of moderate depth. But if you're down there for 30, 40 minutes of that depth, you have to decompress, which means you're, as you ascend to the water column, you're stopping at certain depths and spending time there and to off gas, get rid of the inert gases that build up in your your system and if you don't you, know, you surface too quickly you can you know, have decompression illness called the bends which can be crippling it can be it, it can lead it can be paralyzed it causes a lot of problems you want to avoid it at all costs well in between dives I was I used didn't used to have the best diet practices and I, I was snacking on these uh, fat-free Pringles which anyone knows one of the, one of the uh, Ingredients to that is Olustra, which is, uh, yeah, has some really interesting side effects. Uh, I won't repeat here, but if you are interested and curious, look it up, Google it. So I went, after eating quite a few of those, I went into a dive and had a great dive. It was fantastic. And coming up, and I'm, I still got about an hour and a half to go, and my stomach all of a sudden decided to rebel against me, and it was vicious it it hurt so bad and it was something vicious was just something was brewing and it was it was only getting worse and as I got shallower I'm looking up and wondering should I screw it all and just get bent or just try to grin and bear it and uh, it bears saying that I had three other friends in the water with me and they knew I was you know not doing so well and uh, finally got to the point where it was you know I want to die and I'm hurting so bad, and uh, I never thought I could do this in the water, but somehow I was able to basically de-gear myself, get my wetsuit down, and then you had a Vulcan, a Vulcanist, uh, Vulcanologist. Yeah, it was a, it was an <laughs> eruption, and my friends, my poor, poor friends in the water, witnessing this, and then realizing the current is taking it towards them, and it's watching them just scatter. I mean, they're scarred to this day. It was it was bad, but then it was oh so good, and then just so embarrassing at the same time. It was just so many emotions going through my brain. But when you gotta go, you just gotta go sometimes. And underwater, topside doesn't matter. Here endeth the lesson. Um. I'm so sorry for that. <laughs>
I know for future scientists, you guys have to top that story, okay? If you're out there and listening. I will live again. Just a walk, it's not the truth. Here I am, wishful thinking. Must conclude, it's just a walk, it's not the truth. Here I am, wishful thinking. Here I am, wishful thinking. Here I am, wishful thinking. Oh my god, that was too much.